I don't know that I'm a child of God by myself, by my own spirit, by my own thoughts, my own thinking. It's the Holy Spirit that bears witness to me. I'm depending on the Holy Spirit's witness to my spirit, my human spirit, that I am a child of God. Fourthly, how does the Holy Spirit aid us? It enables intimacy with God. For you have not received the spirit of adoption again to fear, but you have received the spirit, uh, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit within you enables you to rightfully call God, not just Father, but Abba, Father. A far more intimate term. Father can be a very official sort of a term, a title. But the word Abba, Papa, Daddy, that's one of intimacy. And when you became a Christian, you came into an intimacy with Almighty God, your Father. Another way in which the Holy Spirit aids us. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man, no man can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse and that no man, no one can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. You can't say that Jesus is the Lord unless you have the Holy Spirit of God within you because that term Lord to you would just be a very sterile term. It would be meaningless to you. But by having received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus to us so that we can rightfully, honestly, sincerely, and emotionally call Jesus Lord. He is our Lord, my Lord, your Lord, because the Holy Spirit enables you to be able to call Him that. Because Jesus says to others in Luke 6.46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In Matthew 7.21, One, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and all those other things? And they'll say, I never knew you. So it was only lip service. It was only on their lips. It wasn't in their heart. And it's not until you have the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart, that you're rightfully being able to say, Jesus is Lord, because he is your Lord, not just Lord of all, but he's your personal Lord and personal Savior. Six, how else does the Holy Spirit aid us? We already had that reading in Acts chapter 1 and 8. And you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. And then it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. There is empowerment that a believer receives through the gift of the Holy Spirit given to them. You are a powerful being that God has installed in you the Spirit to enable you to be a powerful witness. If we had it our own way, we would want to put on a, uh, a display. We would want to try to put on a face that would be acceptable to everybody at all times. We would want to be popular and acceptable. But no, we, when we receive the Spirit of God, we are enabled to be powerful witnesses for Him. Next. 1 Corinthians 2.9, it tells us that, but as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath promised to them 
that love him. Verse 10. No, he didn't have 10 there. 10 says, but God hath revealed this unto you by the Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. See, God gives us spiritual eyes. Eye hasn't seen no ear heard. That's talking about the natural man. Doesn't see these things that we see. It's because they don't have the Spirit. They're blinded to that. We were once blinded. Once I was blind, now I see. The Spirit gives life and light and eyes to see spiritual things that we would not otherwise be able to see. Eighth, <clears throat> how else does the Holy Spirit aid us? Romans 9.1. It tells us here how that, I say the truth, this is Paul writing, in Christ I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost or in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit becomes a conscience for us as to things that are right and wrong. We have the Spirit within us that gives us a sense of truth, of error, of right, of or wrong, or what's appropriate, what isn't. Thank God for that, because if I was depending on myself to make determinations of, on whether I should do this or that, I would fail. But having the Holy Spirit makes all the difference in the world. He bears witness with our conscience, and we do what is right and pleasing in His sight. Next, John fourteen twenty six. What does this do? How does the Holy Spirit aid us here? He teaches and reminds us. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Aren't you glad you have the Holy Spirit within you to teach you and to bring things to your remembrance? Again, we don't have the brain capacity, we don't have the intellectual capacity, but we do have the Spirit's capacity to have these things that Jesus taught be brought to us and we be reminded of these things. Next, how else does the Holy Spirit aid us? Romans 8.23, and we can again be thankful for this, as it says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And it goes on to say in verse 24, And the Spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So the Spirit aids us in even our prayer life. Because I think we'd all admit that sometimes our articulations and our prayers, we get lost sometimes, we get confused, we don't know the right words to utter, we're not sure, we're, we're communicating with God appropriately or accurately, but thank God that the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, that you and I would not be capable of uttering to God, they become communicating, communicated to God by the Holy Spirit. Another way in which the Holy Spirit aids us is Matthew ten nineteen. Do you ever come to a point where, boy, I don't know if I can handle this, I don't know what I'm going to say, but praise God, Jesus said this when but when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you shall speak. Verse 20 says, For it is not you that speaks, but the Spirit of God who speaks in you. 
the Spirit of God who speaks in you. That's a promise that we have from the Lord, that we can depend upon the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't do away with preparation. We should be prepared if we're going to have to give a lecture, a speech, a testimony, or speak for the Lord, of course. But count on the Holy Spirit. When Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher in the 19th century, in, in the book called Preachers and Preaching by Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says that when... when uh, Charles Spurgeon would go up to the pulpit. There were 15 steps up to the top of the platform. And each step he took, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's someone who was dependent on Lord, on the Lord. Spurgeon didn't write out every word that he preached. A lot of what we give glory to God for in his writings was something that the Spirit gave him at that time. And I think we too can have a measure of that as well. And then lastly, how the Holy Spirit aids us. This has to do with elders. Paul says, For it is... Oh, oh, here we go. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which... The Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Notice that the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. How? Over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you. Elders aren't made of their own doing. And I do believe that elders can be trained or people can be trained in eldering, but... It's a gift, and it's a measure of the Spirit that creates in them a desire for the flock. That's a primary uh, characteristic of an elder, is care and with a desire to what? To feed the church of God. To feed the church of God. Which means we're all hungry. We should have an appetite. We should have a desire and a hunger when we come together to hear the Word preached. That should feed our souls. We should go away satisfied. If the pulpit person is doing an adequate job, we should go away with a, with a sense of encouragement and blessing. And it's the responsibility of the preacher, the elders, to feed the flock. That's critical. That is so important. These are just, in my opinion, some of the highlights of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. I want now to turn to Luke, 5, Luke chapter 11. Can we get that up on the screen? And I'm using the New International Version here for a particular reason because of a translation of a couple words that I think highlight what I would like to communicate. Well, so read with me, listen up as we go from Luke 5 to verse 13, Luke chapter 11, verse 5 to 13. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose that the one inside says, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Is that what you're supposed to believe? Jesus says differently. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, it's not... It's not because of a friendship relationship that he's willing to get up out of his bed, possibly wake up his family. They all would sleep likely in one large room. Wake them up, get food, serve his friend who can serve his friend. It's, this is the reason why he would be willing to get up. Yet because of 
Well, let me read 8 again. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your, and I like this translation, your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. That's a friend. But that's a friend that believes in a friend who's willing to appeal to him and say, hey, this is the worst time of the night, midnight. You're with your family. You're all sound asleep. I've got a, a uh, odd visitor that come in, a friend of mine at an odd time. I've got to feed him. I don't have anything to give him. And he goes and knocks on his friend's door and says, can you provide me with something so I can give to my sojourning friend that has come to my house? Because he goes to the house and boldly requests the food on that ground, not on the grounds of friendship particularly, but on the grounds of his boldness. Do you get the point here? That's what Jesus is saying. It's because of his shameless audacity. The ESV says his impudence. The King James says because of the opportunity or opportune time. In other words, he is... He is like struck by the boldness of his friend who says, I need the bread now. And because of that, all the rest fades into insignificance. It's because of the boldness of the approach that he's obligated, so to speak, to give in to him. Now what, look what Jesus says right after that. So I say to you, what I just told you as an example, I'm saying to you, this is us, brothers and sisters, ask and it will be given you. Seek, and you shall find, and knock, and the door shall be opened to you. Notice that A-S-K. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Ask, seek, and you shall find, and knock, and the door shall be opened to you. That is a commentary on the friend that approaches the friend with that bold audacity, that shameless audacity, in requesting from him what he needs to serve his company. Now, that being said is, I think, important in the way in which to understand the following. And this is what I would like to concentrate on, are the following verses, which can be somewhat puzzling, and I have labored over this a little bit as well, wondering how Jesus could say these words at the end, and we'll get to that. But let's look at verse 9, and then we'll go down to 13. So I, excuse me, I just read verse 11. Which of your fathers, and again, this is another example, which of you that are fathers, if your son asks for a fish, food, that that would be a common uh, dish in those days, asks for a fish, will he give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, is he going to give him a scorpion? It's obvious. It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. That's not what you would expect from a father whose son, whose child is requesting something from him. You know, this should remind us of how we should be approaching God. Approaching God as a child, as children, to our Heavenly Father. He's not a stern being that is cold-hearted, that is indifferent, that is very uh, sterile and independent. No, he's very intimate and close with us. We've read examples of how the Holy Spirit aids us. We've been brought into the very holiest of all. 
Back in the 60s when JFK was president, remember they made a big thing of how uh, JFK Jr. was able to come right into the Oval Office. Remember those pictures? And he was playing around near the president's feet and uh, it was like, of course he belongs there. Yes, his father's the president. Nobody goes into the Oval Office. But the son can go in and we can go in to our heavenly father. That's why it says in Hebrews 4:16, "Let us therefore boldly come unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Boldly approach, not just approach, because we have no guilt anymore. We have no more sins that bar us from God. As it says in Isaiah 59 two, your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear you. That's not the fact with us anymore. We're able to come into the presence of the Lord with confidence. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw... Remember that song that we sang? Yes, it's with confidence we draw near to God. Let's not be timid about approaching God. Ask seek, knock. Jesus is saying, you, you don't get it because you don't ask for it. And I'm not trying to sound too prosperity gospel-ish with the health and wealth idea. I, I'm, not trying to, I'm just trying to say what Jesus said. Forget the, the prosperity message that we hear over the earways. This is what Jesus tells us. Ask, seek, knock. You'll find, you'll get... You, He hears us. Do we believe that when we pray? I think, I know I sometimes just fall into a routine of praying and then I kind of feel good about having prayed. But I'm not sure how much I've really intimately communed with God in prayer. It's really convicting. And these words are convicting. Now here's the tough verse. Verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, meaning evil, that we're part of an evil mankind, humanity, you know, even the worst of the worst will give their child, if they want an egg, we'll give them an egg. If the child wants fish, we're going to give them fish. Those of you that had new babies, you know how desirous it is for you to give to the child what the child wants, what the child needs. It's obvious. It's expected. But we're going to give. We're going to, as he goes on to say, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more? How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, that almost sounds contradictory to everything that I said before, how that the Spirit, Holy Spirit aids us. We have the Spirit within us. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We're born of the Spirit. We have life in the Spirit. How then can we, should we ask for the Holy Spirit? What does Jesus mean here? How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who asked Him? Have you ever wrestled over that verse? Have you wondered, boy, could it be one possible, I know this is a commentary suggestion, is that this is in the Gospel of Luke, right? That this is being said. The way the Gospel of Luke ends is Jesus said to tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with Spirit from on high. So after Jesus rose from the dead, what do the apostles do? They head to Jerusalem. 
Now, the Galileans, they get an upper room in Jerusalem and they tarry, they're waiting, and they're praying. doesn't tell us what they're, what, what they're praying for. Jesus doesn't tell them to pray for the Holy Spirit, but says it, tarry there until you be endued with power from on high, the promise of my Father, which he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke 1 says, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. So Luke is giving us, I like to think of the book of Acts as Luke second chapter. The Gospel of Luke is the first chapter. The book of Acts by Luke is the second chapter. If you want to know what inspired Luke has to write, read them together. Too bad John is sandwiched in between Luke and Acts. And it's unfortunate that we don't get the connecting link between Luke's ending of of Luke 24 and Luke's beginning of Acts chapter 1. Because in Acts chapter 1, he says, Theophilus, I've already written to you about the things that Jesus did. Now I'm writing to you about... Then he goes on to give us the whole history of the early church from probably uh, after Jesus rose, so let's say 29 or 30 A.D., up to possibly 60. So 30 years of church history Luke is giving to us. That's part two. Luke the Gospel, part one. Luke Acts, part two. Try to read them together in your mind and I think you're going to see some amazing uh, links that connect the two in similarities. How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, some commentators would say, well, the, the apostles and disciples, there were 120, remember, that were in the upper room and they were in prayer. And by the way, that's the last time that we read about Jesus' mother Mary being referred to. Nothing else after after that. For 30 years, Mary is not mentioned. But years later, of course, she's made so much out of. She's the one that you pray to, according to the Roman Catholic Church. She's the intercessor for us to get through to Jesus when she's not even mentioned after Acts 1. And she's in the prayer meeting. She's not being prayed to. She's praying with others. Even though, yes, she was blessed but here she is calling on the Lord. She's praying corporately with the disciples. And it's nice to see men and women getting together too in unity to pray unto the Lord for the same purposes. But is that the right interpretation? I would say nay. I don't think that's it because I don't see any highlighted verses in Acts 1 where the indications are that the prayer meeting was about praying for the Holy Spirit. It was simply a gift and the only thing they had to do was to wait And of course they're going to be praying as they're waiting for the Spirit of God to come upon them. They had no idea what was going to hit them when the Spirit descends upon them with a rushing mighty wind and cloven tongues of fire and all of a sudden they are on fire. The Spirit of God is carrying them in ways like you read about. Peter stands up filled with the Holy Spirit and says, Men and brethren... Children of the stock of Israel. And he goes on to tell them about that Jesus who you crucified. God raised him from the dead. He's the Lord now of all. What a message. He could only have done that by the gift of the Holy Spirit given. So what does Jesus mean when he says, 
How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Have you ever asked God for the Holy Spirit? You already have the Holy Spirit. Why would we want to ask Him again for the Holy Spirit? It's not that we're asking for a second spirit baptism or we're not asking for a second reunctioning of ourselves by the Spirit of God, but it's simply asking God for a ministry of the Holy Spirit, a, a, a special, how should I de- describe it, a special unction, a, 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 a special occasion that deserves a special unction from God by asking God for the Holy Spirit. So is it right or wrong to ask God for the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, it can't be referring to conversion for the Holy Spirit to come in conversion power. It's already spoken to people who have had the conversion experience. So that's why he says about praying to your Father. He talks about earlier in in the beginning about asking and seeking. And he talks about that one that comes boldly and says, My friend, I've got to have something for my friend provided to me. And he does it boldly. Next, Jesus says, "When When you want something from the Lord, ask, seek, knock. There's persistence. That's what we need to have in our life, that persistence to ask God for the Holy Spirit. It's not contradicting sound doctrine about the Holy Spirit sanctifying and justifying us, etc. But it is asking God for an ongoing renewal, for revival, for a greater purpose to serve God. God, give me the Holy Spirit. I cannot do without it. It's like, how should I say, frosting on the cake? We've already got the cake, but now we need the frosting. And sometimes the frosting kind of melts away or loses its flavor. God, give me the Holy Spirit. It's not an unfounded prayer. Jesus tells us that He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, ask in a way like the friend that asks the friend, like Jesus describes about asking, seeking, and knocking. You are a miracle. Every child of God that's seated here that has been born again, you are an absolute miracle. You didn't create the miracle, but you are a miracle of God's. We can't be thankful enough of what we are in Christ Jesus. He's done an amazing work in us. He has transformed our lives. He has changed our destiny. He has changed our attitude towards life and towards death and towards Him most importantly. That's the power of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And you are actually now the 67th book of the Bible. There are 66 inspired writings from Genesis to Revelation. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, You are the epistle of Christ known and read of all men. Man, if that doesn't put a little bit of a a responsibility on you... Think about it next time when you're going to do something like, I don't know if I should do it. I am an epistle of Christ. People are reading me. They don't read the Bible. They're reading you. And maybe you're not out there witnessing to every single one of these people, but they're still reading you. You're constantly being read, especially if you're known to be a Christian. To him that much is given, much is required, and the world will require more from us than they would from anyone who doesn't claim 
to be a believer. You are the 67th book of the Bible. You have been inspirated. You have been inspired. All of those aids that we talked about. You have the Holy Spirit of God within you. You have the power. There's an unlimited amount of what we can do for God. But I don't think that we sometimes get the maximum that we could be from the Lord. So the question I want to ask us all is, how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? That's the title of this message. How much of the Holy Spirit do you have? And I think all of us should say, not enough. I want more. You know, the Brownsville revival that happened in Brownsville, Florida years ago, 1994 to 8 or something like that. It was a Pentecostal revival. A lot of crazy things went on there that we would definitely want to poo-poo. But one thing I do like about it, that many of them, and I think God in His amazing graces, in His sovereign ways, saves. When Christ is preached, let's say like Paul, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Hallelujah for anyone that got saved in Brownsville. As much as I think it was a a fluke in so many ways, yet God somehow, and I heard stories of playboy bunnies that were down there that ended up getting into the Brownsville uh, revival. And to this day they will say that I changed my lifestyle, I'm still walking with Christ. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit of God. Some of us would want to throw in the towel and give up, give up. But the Holy Spirit is striving with us, desiring us to go on for the Lord. And we have an exhortation from Jesus to pray, how much more will your Father in heaven... This is a prayer, obviously, of those that are already are in relationship with the Lord, who already have the Holy Spirit. Because you can't be in relationship with the Lord without having the Holy Spirit of God within you, correct? So the prayer is not a prayer of an unsaved person asking God to fill them with the Spirit. It's a prayer of a believer saying to God, give me the Holy Spirit. So the question is, is, is really um, not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but the real question is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? You see the difference? How much of the Holy Spirit do you have versus how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Look at this. One cup's got water in it, one of the cup doesn't, right? This cup has something in it. It It's half full. This cup is empty. You know... Some Christians are half-full Christians, all right? And one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit prayer that we talked about here, about asking God for the Holy Spirit, is that we still have a lot of ourself in our lives. Christ isn't the supreme Lord of our life. We don't want to have the rest filled. But the way to get filled is we first have to be empty, of ourselves, of our pride, of our selfishness, of our own goals. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. To do that, to deny yourself, is your willingness to be an empty cup and say, Lord, take my life and fill it to the full with the Holy Spirit of God that I might be able 
to serve you. Thank God that as we were reading in Acts chapter 1 about the Spirit, Jesus says, uh, John says about Jesus, I baptize you with water, but he that comes after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize you with the Spirit. Everyone who's born again is has the Holy Spirit of God within them. We're going to have two sisters are going to come up here and give their testimonies. And each of them have been already baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? They're already united internally to Christ and His people. Because Jesus does the baptizing. I'm going to baptize you, as it were, in the Holy Spirit. And so every child of God has been baptized. And we, the day you ex- got saved, you experience the Holy Spirit of God within you, the changed life, your love for the Lord, your love for the people of God, your love to gather with God's people, your love for the Holy Scriptures. That's been created by God in you. To God be the glory. So that moment, the thief on the cross, face one look at Christ expiring on the tree, one heart-believing glance at Him, can set the sinner free. And that's what happened. He just took a last look at Christ at the 11th hour, said, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And instantly, that man got saved. The minute you look at the Lord and trust Him as your Lord and Savior, if you've never done that, that will be the moment you'll be united internally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to that. And that's what gets people to heaven. That's the new birth. That's being born again. Those who are born again are able to see and enter the kingdom of God. So why be water baptized? Some people like the Salvation Army, they don't believe in water baptism. They don't practice water baptism because they think that spirit baptism is adequate. It's adequate to get you to heaven, but it's not satisfactory to the words of the Lord Jesus when he says to believe and be baptized. Baptism is subsequent to believing. So now those who are going to be water baptized will be united externally to Christ and to His people. The internal relationship to the Lord comes by the baptism of the Spirit which is occurs at the moment the sinner believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. They are instantly baptized with the Spirit, united to their head in heaven, Jesus, and to all the people of God here on, in this world. But now water baptism is an external sign of union to the Lord Jesus, taking on His name and also being a public uh, 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 associate of all other believers. They're joining, as it were, all those that have been baptized externally and they belong to that family, which should be, this is why Baptists believe in a regenerated church. Those who hold to infant baptism would say that these infants are in the church. How can that be? They've got to be born again to be in the church. So we have a big a big uh, to, to do with those who hold to infant baptism as good as many of these men and teachers have been not just in our day but in many days gone past all of the Calvins or Luthers or Jonathan Edwards and so on I'm not going to get into why infant baptism versus believer baptism but believer baptism to me just comes right out of the Bible at one time I, I fluctuated on that whole subject until finally the Lord, through some good writings and, and, and reading the scriptures wisely and carefully, the Lord showed me that baptism must be subsequent, 
not previous to conversion. So the two that are going to come forward, and I'm going to ask uh, Anna if she will come up first, and she's going to share her testimony, followed by the next sister, and then we're going to do the baptism. So come on up here, speak nice and loud, get that mic up, jack it up to the hills. Hi, everyone. My name is Anna Roberts, and I'm 17 years old. I've grown up in a Christian home, attending Sovereign Grace Chapel my whole life. I live with my parents and my brother. Growing up, I've attended Sunday school and church each week, and I've believed in God for as long as I can remember. I've always been a pretty good kid, not getting into too much trouble. Before I was saved, I can't think of anything I did that was defiantly wrong besides being disrespectful towards my parents and being rude to my brother. I don't recall ever really feeling convicted of my actions before I was saved. As I grew older and matured, I realized I was lacking salvation. At that time, I realized I was a sinner and only God would save me. I knew I needed to repent of my sins and ask, and ask for forgiveness, so sometime around age 11 or 12, I prayed for, for my salvation. John 5.24 is a verse that reminds me of that time, and I can recall it speaking to me. John 5.24 John 5, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Because of that point in my life, I was still so young and uncertain of my salvation. I chose to wait to be baptized. I continued living pretty much the same as before I was saved, as there wasn't that much to change in my life. However, as I've grown up since then, I've noticed more spiritual growth and my faith has begun to deepen. What I believed has become more understandable. Another verse that I think is fitting is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Attending public high school has been a tough journey, but I've stood with my faith and have abstained from the usual party life of high school kids, even if it has meant losing friends. I felt persecution and rejection because of my faith, but through God's strength, I have persevered. My life has changed after my salvation. I find myself holding back on being rude to my family. I feel a desire to pray and read the Bible, although I can still grow in that area. Even though I felt assured of my faith, I still held back on getting baptized because of watching older kids from youth group who had been baptized completely leave the church and change their lives once they got older. However, looking back on my life recently and my perseverance through the trials I have faced, I've come to realize it is not of my own strength, but of God. I now feel convicted of not having been baptized when I should have, and therefore I don't want to wait any longer, and I'm ready to take the step. So today I'm thankful for this opportunity to stand before my my family and friends to be baptized and praise God for saving me and making me a new creation in Christ. I've watched Anna grow up in youth group, and so now I'm coming up here crying. <laughs> it's not a good good way to start. Um, so I know it's probably a surprise to see me up here, um, so I'm just going to share my testimony with you. Um, so having grown up in a home where church attendance, Bible reading, prayer, and talking about God were a normal part of life, I also never knew a time when I didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ um, and the need to repent of my sins and trust in him for salvation. Um, When I was about nine years old, I was struck by my need for Jesus to save me from my sin. Otherwise, I would be rightly condemned to hell. I prayed for salvation, and as was custom in our church, I was baptized very shortly after I communicated this to my parents. 
Consistent with our church's beliefs on baptismal regeneration, I was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the remission of my sins. Nothing changed drastically in my life after this, as I believe it's fairly common amongst those that grow up in Christian homes. Um, But I know that I loved the Lord and was living for him instead of me. When I was a teenager, my dad and then eventually my mom stopped attending church on a regular basis, and my siblings and I would attend church on our own. The older I got, the more I thought about the need for my life to reflect the faith that I claimed. I began intensely evaluating what I believed and the teaching of the church I was attending. I realized that it did not teach what I believed. About this time in my life, the Lord providentially moved me to Connecticut for a year of school at UConn, and I began attending Sovereign Grace, and I was amazed to find a church that actually taught what I believed and to realize that that same doctrine had been taught for hundreds of years prior to my discovery of it. Um, It humbles you a little bit. Nothing new under the sun. So um, I know that I was saved at a young age, and the revelation of the deeper things of God was subtle during that time. Um, But coming to Sovereign Grace was a time of intense revelation for me. I often compare my time at Sovereign Grace in 2012 with Paul's encounter with Ananias in Damascus. The scales had fallen from my eyes, and I saw clearly what I believed and what I was being called to do as a believer. The spirit had fanned into flame the small ember that he had lit in my soul so many years before. My faith had been tested and proven genuine, my own faith as opposed to the faith of my parents or my church. Since then, I have grown um, grown in my faith, um, though there have certainly been mountains and valleys in my walk with the Lord. But I praise God that my faith has consistently grown stronger and deeper. I love my triune God more than ever. I am more amazed at his grace in saving me. I hate more and more my sins that Jesus shed his own blood for. I have a greater desire to understand his word and to live it out. And I long for the day when I get to see my Savior and live in light of his glory for eternity. So while I am confident in my salvation at an early age, I've wrestled with, my, with the validity of my baptism. Whether or not at nine years old I shared the same beliefs as my church, that baptism was necessary in order to save me. And at the very least, I was baptized into a community that believed that was true. Um, Over the last two years, the Lord has kept laying this issue of baptism on my heart. And I have prayed for clear understanding, sought the advice of other mature believers, and evaluated my own heart on this matter. In order that I might have a clear conscience before God, I've requested to be rebaptized today, not as a necessary step in my salvation, but as a public declaration of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a vital sacrament in the life of a believer, and I am grateful that the Lord has been so gracious to deepen my understanding of baptism's value and rightful place in my life. I am grateful for this opportunity to share my testimony of God's work in my life and have you as witnesses to God's faithfulness in sanctifying me. To God be glory forever.